Hello and welcome to another episode of Virtual Legality. I'm your host, Richard Hogue, managing member of the Hogue Law Business Law Firm of Northville, Michigan. And today, as this lovely headline from 538 says, we're going to talk about the Wisconsin primary. Wisconsin presidential primary, but also general elections that are being held in Wisconsin today, April 7th, 2020, in the middle of the coronavirus pandemic, COVID-19 outbreak. And as I say those words, before we get started, I do want to say, if this isn't your first time in virtual legality, that this video is very likely to be demonetized because we are talking about issues of sensitivity in accord with YouTube law. And so they like to squash down on these videos, but that's not going to prevent me from using the terminology that relates to these specific issues because it's important, because this is some of the most important stuff to talk about right now. And so if you can help me out, if you can leave comments to this video, if you can share it around with anybody that you think might be interested, if you can like, subscribe, do all that stuff, hit all the buttons, I would really appreciate it because all of the videos that we have talked about these kinds of topics in virtual legality for the last month have been demonetized, have been essentially singled out by YouTube for squashing down and not promoting on their algorithm and everything else. And sometimes that gets reversed on review. Sometimes it hasn't, even though we're always talking about legal and business issues in this space. If this is your first time and you don't otherwise know whether you like this type of talk or this video or me, then feel free to avoid all of that. This isn't for you. This is for those folks that like what I do and can help me out by commenting and liking and doing all those good things. Now, without further ado, let's talk about some politics, right? Because we're always talking about politics in this space. No, not really. But while we're going to talk about law and the way that the government is organized and what specific kind of bind the Supreme Court of the United States was put in with respect to these specific questions, and that's all kind of legal and not necessarily political on its face, because of the topic discussed, it's going to naturally be political. So if you aren't familiar with anything that's going on in Wisconsin today, they're having this primary. It's in the middle of the pandemic. Most of the other states have delayed their primaries, have delayed certain voting that was scheduled to take place in the spring. And Wisconsin didn't do that. And Wisconsin has gotten a lot of bad headlines out of that. Wisconsin election fight heralds a national battle over virus era voting. Wisconsin holds primary amid pandemic after Republicans refuse to delay the thing. Wisconsin holds its primary election in the middle of pandemic. Ruth Bader Ginsburg slams SCOTUS decision. Wisconsin primary polls open. Wisconsin lieutenant governor calls election a shit show and all sorts of good stuff. Wisconsin, to some extent, brought this on themselves. And we're going to get into all the various constituent parties involved here, hopefully not in an hour-long version of virtual legality, but there is a lot going on. And why did this fundamentally happen to Wisconsin and no one else? Sure, maybe there's inherent dysfunction in the way their legislature operates, but also it's because they have other votes that are important that relate to term-limited government officials on this ballot today, it says on the ballot this year are the presidential primary, sure, a seat on the state Supreme Court and local offices, including Milwaukee mayor and Milwaukee County executive. And if we go back and look at the 538 article, they actually highlight that some of these people have terms that end on April 20th. That's 13 days from now. And if you ever wondered why exactly we have the presidential election in November, but the presidency doesn't actually change over until January. This is perhaps a good reason 
that there are things that could happen that might require us to think carefully about when that election takes place. And if it's too close to when the term of the elected official would otherwise end, it becomes this massive, massive logistical problem because you can't move it too far. You can't do what, say, Ohio did and move it months back because it's only the primary for the presidential election and you've got a time period in which to move it. No, you have to have this vote pretty soon or the alternative is pretty bad for those of you that are in favor of representative democracy. And as our segue there, let's talk about the first issue. So Wisconsin is unusual. Wisconsin has all these headlines and a lot of people are getting confused on social media and on Twitter and elsewhere because there were multiple things happening at once. And I don't blame anybody for that. In the last 24 hours, really, a whole bunch of different stuff happened. And we are absolutely going to talk about this, right? That's what's on everybody's lips. That's what people are complaining about. That's what people are accusing various political parties of ignoring certain things in the law. And we're going to get to that. But the Supreme Court decision yesterday night is only half of what happened yesterday. So there are two major things. The first is that the governor of Ohio, who you see pictured on the left side of the thumbnail here, issued an executive order yesterday, Monday, April 6th, the day before the election. And we're going to take a look at that, but it purports to delay the election. And that in and of itself was its own issue. We're going to talk about that because it was happening at the same time as what ultimately led to that Supreme Court decision last night. But that Supreme Court decision relates to a different thread in which voters in Wisconsin essentially sued to have the election delayed. A district court, whose opinion we are going to look at, decided not to delay it because they didn't think they had the power to, but decided to allow absentee ballots not only to be counted after the election date of April 7th, but to actually be cast after that date. And it's that question, whether or not absentee ballots should be allowed to be cast after the election date, actually filled out and sent in after that election date, that is what resulted in the Supreme Court decision where you have what appears to be Kavanaugh and Ruth Bader Ginsburg sniping at each other. And we're definitely going to look at that because there's a lot of interesting things there as well. But that's a separate discussion as between that and whether or not the governor of Ohio, uh, the governor of Wisconsin, sorry, governor of Ohio, you you delayed it, uh, was right in issuing this executive order. And we're going to see exactly why it got struck down as quickly as it did. But This executive order, number 74, says relating to suspending in-person voting today, April 7th, and he's got a lot of whereases here, whereases being the recitals that explain what the situation is. And it says, hey, basically, the statute requires it to be on April 7th, but if you haven't noticed, we've got a bit of a viral outbreak issue happening right now. Now, therefore, because of all of that, I am doing the following. I am suspending in-person voting for April 7th, and delaying it until June 9th, 2020. So that's more than two months, unless the legislature does something else in the interim, and I agree to it. And they're also going to essentially order the legislature to meet in special session to try to figure out a different date and to figure out exactly how this should all work when we actually work it out. Because, hey, not only is it a problem that we should delay for, it's unlikely to be completely obliterated and gone by June 9th, we should really be thinking about different aspects of the law and ways that we can keep people secure while they vote on that June 9th election. So this was, I'm suspending it, I'm delaying it till June 9th, 
and I'm ordering the legislature to decide on new rules and to figure out how to handle this thing in the interim period. And then we get to paragraph three, which is the, the big problem if you're sitting here, if you're me, and you look at something like this, this raises all the alarm bells, all the red flags, and I think it's why people reacted the way they did. Provide that given the necessary delay in the spring 2020 election, so I'm delaying it for two months, those individuals currently serving in an office to be filled based upon the results of the spring 2020 election ballot are authorized to continue fulfilling the duties of those offices and exercising the privileges of those offices until three business days after we are able to certify a count of the election whenever it happens, currently scheduled for June 9th under this executive order. Understand what that means. That means that people that are in office right now that would otherwise be removed from office on, I believe, that April 20th date, based on some of the things that I've seen floating around, including that 538 article, are going to be permitted by executive fiat here, by executive order, by a piece of paper and a pen, to retain those offices past where the law would have them be removed until we actually get a vote on the books. Now, Reasonable minds can differ on this score. The point of all this isn't to suggest that reasonable minds can't differ on these kinds of things because this is an enormously complicated logistical question. But when you are looking at something like election law in the United States and part of your emergency order is we're going to delay the election and those people currently in office can retain their offices that starts to look like what everybody is afraid of in terms of those buzzwords that you see, dictatorship, fascism, authoritarianism, whatever you want to call it. And if you don't see that, I'd ask you to perform a thought experiment with me on this. Imagine first that the governor was actually up for re-election right now in this election, and he had paragraph three that said, I'm delaying the election past when my term would end, and I'm just going to stay in office until we can get a vote on the books. Is that an acceptable power of the executive of your state? And then if you think that maybe is okay because it's a pandemic, Rick, and this is all really worrisome, I want you to also perform the thought experiment with me that says, the day before the election in November, President Trump signs an executive order that says, this pandemic is really scary. We're going to delay the election until sometime past the end of my term, and I'll just retain office until we can get a vote on the books. How do you feel about that? Because my bet is, regardless of where you fall on the political spectrum, you can see that we have to be very, very cautious with the actual office holders changing when other office holders or themselves can be removed from office. And there's a reason why election law is law and it's legislative in, in origin, that you actually have the legislature approve these laws and not the executive just acting by fiat. Now, I also want to back up a step here before we press on to actually talk about the kind of authority that the governor claims for this position and why I think it's problematic in and of itself. But before I do, I want to point out a few things, right? One is, I personally don't think this election should be going on in Wisconsin. I think the legislature should have been able to figure out a way to change the law, to change the rules, to change the regulations, to get this election moved, to figure out what to do with the people whose terms have ended, and to do it lawfully through legislative control, and not to have executive fiat, a pen, and a piece of paper change things. 
I think this is a woeful abdication of legislative responsibility at the Wisconsin level. And I believe, I'm not terribly familiar with Wisconsin politics, but I take some of this as given, that according to the people that I've read, that that falls pretty clearly at the feet of the Republican legislature of Wisconsin. So if you're reading Salon or you're reading Vox or you're reading CNN or wherever, and you want to lay at the feet of the Republicans this particular problem in the election, I think that you can do that. But I would say that it's properly aimed at the Republican legislature of Wisconsin, who just didn't change any of the rules, didn't look at any of these statutory changes that were suggested, as we see here as described. And again, we have to take it with a grain of salt because we're not looking at source material. We aren't looking directly at what was said, but at least as 538 frames it, which is not without bias. In fact, not only did Evers, the governor and the legislature not change the date of the election, but they have also been unable to agree on any statutory changes to the state's election procedures in the face of restrictions on gatherings. For, for instance, on March 27th, Evers called for the state to mail a ballot to every registered voter, but legislators immediately shot down his proposal as logistically infeasible. Probably true, but still an issue for safety. And late last week, Evers attempted to call a special session of the legislature to delay, but legislative leaders declined to take up his proposal, saying the election should continue as planned. Again, I disagree with that. This isn't a political video. This isn't something that you should be able to use to share and say, ah, Rick says the Republicans are the devil and the Democrats are great or vice versa. There is blame to go around. And I know people on social media hate to hear that kind of nuance, but the Republican legislature in Wisconsin probably should have figured out a way to avoid this specific scenario, but that they didn't doesn't suddenly grant the executive the right to change election law. And if we look at the authority that he claims, first, it's the executive power that we've talked about in virtual legality before. And again, the Wisconsin Constitution is not the same as the United States Constitution, but most of these states are going to have constitutions that are similar in nature. And as expected, he has a broad, quote unquote, executive power which isn't super defined. The executive power shall be vested in a governor who shall hold office for four years and a lieutenant governor shall be elected at the same time and for the same term. His executive order also claims authority under his powers and duties section. It says the governor shall be commander in chief of the military and naval forces of the state. He shall have power to convene the legislature on extraordinary occasions. And in case of invasion or danger from the prevalence of contagious disease at the seat of government, he may convene them at any other suitable place within the state. Now you say, hey, look, hey, there's a reference to contagious disease. That's what we're dealing with right now. But the express power is that he can move the legislature. If the capital of Wisconsin is otherwise crushed with disease, as it probably is right now, he can say, okay, the legislature can move to somewhere else, or presumably he can say we can meet remotely and do those kinds of things. He shall communicate to the legislature at every session the condition of the state and recommend such matters to them for their consideration as he may deem expedient. He shall transact all necessary business with the officers of the government, civil and military, and he shall expedite all such measures as may be resolved upon the legislature and shall take care that the laws be faithfully executed. He's the executive and he can help protect the legislature. But even in this language, you can see that the legislature is supposed to have the power to make the rules around all this. And indeed they have, right? If we look, he sa it says, a spring election means the election held on the first Tuesday in April to elect judicial, educational, and municipal officers, nonpartisan county officers, 
and sewer commissioners and to express preferences for the person to be the presidential candidate for each party in a year in which electors for president and vice president are to be elected. First Tuesday in April, by statute, that is the law. He is to faithfully execute that law. Now, he also applies to one specific other authority that says the powers during an emergency. The governor may do all of the following during a state of emergency declared under section 323.10. And he points specifically to subsection B. He says he's allowed to issue such orders as he or she deems necessary for the security of persons and property. And that is, on its face, a very broadly described power. But I think it's best read as issue such lawful orders that what we are talking about right now isn't a subsection that expressly authorizes the governor to just upend every law on the books of the state of Wisconsin. As a matter of fact, if you look at these other subsections, you can see where he has given broader authority to do that kind of suspension of laws. Subsection D says, suspend the provisions of any administrative rule if the strict compliance with that rule would prevent, hinder, or delay necessary actions to respond to a disaster. You've got other subsections that talk about the suspension of law the suspension of administrative rules, things that are rightly promulgated under those laws. And while B is a blanket power, it's a problematic one because what you've got on the books right now is the legislative authority saying specifically that the election will be on this date. And the executive may have declared an emergency, but it is anathema to the branches of government model of governance to allow the executive to unilaterally declare something and then say, oh, I can overturn this validly enacted law. In fact, the governor himself said only six days ago, which, yes, is officially three years in legal terms under the current status of the world. We have three branches of government to ensure a system of checks and balances and questions about our elections typically rely on all three playing a role. If I could have changed the election on my own, I would have, but I can't without violating state law. You say, okay, well, that's signed, sealed, and delivered, right? He already admitted that he can't change this. Now, his general counsel, or maybe his attorney general, actually winds up saying as part of this, well, things have changed since April 1st, so you can't use that tweet against him. But that tweet was actually pretty prescient. The coronavirus epidemic existed on April 1st. He said he can't change it. He's basically right in saying that. And ultimately, the Wisconsin court says, yeah, you can't do that. It says, it is further ordered that the provisions of Executive Order Number 74, which we just took a look at, are hereby enjoined in their entirety with the sole exception of his order for the legislature to meet and talk about what election rules should be. Now, that's probably moot on its face because the election is taking place right now today. So that really doesn't matter in its entirety. But that's... Problem number one in Wisconsin, right? You've got the Republican legislature refusing to change the date. They say, hey, the election should proceed on its face as normal under the law. We're not going to change anything. You have the governor saying, hey, I'm just going to suspend the thing. And more problematically, really, as I said, anathema to the nature of governance in the United States. I'm just going to keep people on that are already in their offices, right? If he had said, well, they're going to be vacant and we'll figure things out, maybe that's a little bit more palatable. Problematic from a logistical perspective, undoubtedly, but just having people retain their seats past what the law would require, what the law would allow, 
is a problem for understanding modern United States federal governance. And so he says all these things and he appeals to this authority, most specifically this dramatic, I get to issue orders that I think are necessary for security of persons or property. And then the court strikes it down, which means the election is happening today on April 7th. As you can see, that order is April 6th. The decision is April 6th. This is very unusual, actually. You don't get a fulsome legal opinion here. You basically just get, yeah, we're striking it. And then you see, it is further ordered that we'll explain all this later because this happened so, so fast. This order goes out on the 6th. This order from the court comes back out, I think, hours after the executive order went out. And you see, these are the branches of government in Wisconsin fighting and the legislature is just sitting back and saying, we're not changing anything. The election is going to proceed as planned. That's step one. And that wasn't what the Supreme Court talked about yesterday. Step two is that discussion. So I brought up here the district court order, which actually was filed only on April 2nd, again, three years ago in legal time here in the age of Corona. But this specific decision from the Western District of Wisconsin, United States District Court, is what caused all of these issues, what caused all this consternation, why you see the Supreme Court case happen as it did late last night on the eve of the election, which a number of people have problems with. I don't blame them for that. You don't want courts intervening in election law immediately before the election, right? You don't want a Supreme Court decision on the evening of April 6th for an April 7th election. That's a problem. But, but, this district court decision created its own problems. And as we will see, those problems don't even make sense within the context of this decision. And so I do believe the Supreme Court had to act as poorly and as mealy-mouthed and as poorly explained as they wound up doing last night. So I've pulled up now the opinion. This is basically a case that was brought by several Wisconsin voters and voter groups that said, hey, this is too damaging. Most of these people are going to be disenfranchised because the Wisconsin election system is overwhelmed. They don't have the capability of issuing out all these absentee ballots. They don't have the capability of counting them. They have all these other issues. And that's what you see here. WEC is the Wisconsin uh, Election Commission, I believe. Uh, But it's the authority behind elections in Wisconsin. And so this court looked at all this and said, there is a significant issue with potential constitutional disenfranchisement here, but there are steps that we can take and there are steps that we can't take. Most notably at the outset, I want to talk about what they decide not to do. And nobody argues with this at the Supreme Court level, and rightly so. Nobody brings this back up. Nobody challenges this. The district court decides not to delay the election. I've got here the two paragraphs at the end of their first section of their opinion that says, we're not going to delay this thing. It says, without doubt, the April 7th election day will create unprecedented burdens not just for aspiring voters, but also for poll workers, clerks, and indeed the state. As much as the court would prefer that the Wisconsin legislature and governor consider the public health ahead of any political considerations, that does not appear in the cards. Understand, the court is saying exactly what we just talked about. The legislature and governor, who's executing the laws, should change this stuff. It's all written in between the lines here, but the court agrees that April 7th, probably not a great day for this election. But they also understand that the court's powers are limited and they can't just reinterpret the law based on whatever they might be feeling on a given day. Although, 
Hold that thought because we'll see in section B that they decide to do that anyway. Nor is it appropriate for a federal district court to act as the state's chief health official by taking that step for them. At most, the court can only act in good faith to allow the WEC, local municipalities, and poll workers to take what steps they can to vindicate the constitutional right to vote. Accordingly, the court must conclude that plaintiffs have not met their burden of showing that the balance of equities favors in joining the upcoming election day. As the Supreme Court held in Purcell, given the imminence of the election and the inadequate time to resolve the factual disputes, our action today shall of necessity allow the election to proceed without an injunction. That's important. The court decides that they will not delay the election day, that Wisconsin's election will be held on April 7th. Now, continuing with their decision, here's where we start to get into the fighting. Extension of deadline for receipt of absentee ballots. Plaintiffs, the voters and the voting groups that want to have this thing delayed, next request that the court extend the deadline by which absentee ballots may be received. They quote some court cases that say that this should be okay. And then the defendants, the commissioners, the WEC, initially the commissioners maintained that the court should deny plaintiffs' requests for any extension. Now, this is important to the district court. Later, however, the commissioners submitted a notice to the court stating that they do not object to any absentee ballot postmarked by April 7th, 2020. That's the election date. That's today. And received by April 13th, 2020 by 4 p.m. being counted in the spring election. They further represented that if the votes received by 4 p.m. on April 13th, 2020 are counted, it will not impact the ability to complete the canvas, the counting of the votes, in a timely manner. So the commission as part of this action against it and these voter groups suing them has said, okay, we don't mind allowing those ballots to come in a little late. The current Wisconsin requirement is that the absentee ballots have to be delivered by 8 p.m. on election day. It says your completed absentee ballot must be delivered no later than 8 p.m. on election day. The U.S. Postal Service recommends ballots be mailed one week before election day to make sure that they arrive in time. So take coronavirus out of this entirely. If you're in Wisconsin and you get an absentee ballot, if you sent it yesterday, it probably wouldn't get there by today and that vote wouldn't be counted. So as it already stands, the recommendation, as has been the case for every Wisconsin election before this, as long as these laws have been in place, is that this should have been sent last Tuesday. And so we're fighting a little bit about angels on the head of a pin. We're fighting a little bit about things that don't necessarily impact this specific election, except that the district court has determined that, hey, maybe the plaintiffs here are right. Maybe the plaintiffs here that say the Wisconsin Election Commission is overwhelmed, they can't do all of this stuff, is true. And in fact, the commission says, you know what, we ordinarily would make it be required that you deliver these things by April 7th, 2020. We will actually accept them for almost a full week later. That would probably be okay. It shouldn't change our timing uh, issue. But note what they also required. It says we need them postmarked by April 7th, 2020. That's the nature of an election, that the election should take place on April 7th. Yes, absentee ballots are fine, but if they are postmarked afterwards, there's no indication, there's no proof, there's no evidence that those votes were actually cast by the time of the election. And even if you don't agree with any of this stuff, I think theoretically, philosophically, you agree with, 
the nature of allowing ballots to be filled out after election day makes it so that the election day, the purported one, isn't actually the election day. And we'll see why that's an issue as we continue on. It says, the RNC, RPW, and the Wisconsin legislature contend generally that deadlines ensure the orderly administration of elections. Indeed, they do. They also prevent kind of information from getting out there. It's why you see no reporting being done before the election polls are closed and things along those lines because we don't want to have information affect different constituencies, different demographics, desire or not desire to go to the polls and to vote. Turning then to the merits, the court first considers the burden that the absentee receipt deadline will place on voters. The evidence presented by the parties and amiki, that's friends of the court, demonstrates that even the most diligent voter may be unable to return his or her ballot in time to be counted. And while the district court says, hey, deadlines do generally provide certainty and reliability, we don't think that that's specifically persuasive here. So they're going to extend the deadline. More, most persuasive is, of course, the fact that the WEC itself does not oppose extending the deadline to April 13th, 2020. That's what we just read, because it would not impact the ability to complete the canvas in a timely manner. Now, here the district court steals a base, because the actual averance of the WEC was that, yes, April 13th for counting is fine, but we're still going to require the votes to actually be cast by April 7th. And the district court says, eh, not so much. The court will not add a postmarked by date requirement. It is simply moving the statutory absentee receipt deadline. No persuasive evidence suggests that further altering statutory requirements will impose tangible benefits or harms. And indeed, the amicus briefs from various local governments suggest that an extension of the deadline would be heartily welcomed by many local officials. Now, there's no indication here that anybody was actually arguing for the April 13th date to allow votes to be cast. And that's going to be a part of the Supreme Court decision. But ultimately, what the district court decided to do here was to say, one, we're not going to delay the election. And then two, we're actually kind of factually going to delay the election until April 13th because we are going to allow votes to be cast and counted until that date. And because, as the rest of this court case shows, 1.2 million plus absentee ballots had already been issued and potentially voted, then what we're actually talking about is really changing that date to April 13th, even while the district court says that it can't do that. And that's the fight. That's what everybody's been fighting about. That's what this Supreme Court decision is actually about. And that's why you get all these headlines about evil Republicans seeking to kill people and all these kinds of things. And I think the Supreme Court's hands were tied here. The district court acted to do what it said it wasn't going to do, acted outside of what was requested of it by the parties. And then the Supreme Court had to try to figure out what it was to decide. Now, the Supreme Court says in a number of places in this specific decision, which is written very quickly and not so terribly usefully, for a lot of kind of high-level legal thought here, says we are not opining as to whether this election should be taking place. And again, reading between the lines, I think it's heavily implied that the Supreme Court would not be having this election. But it's not up to the Supreme Court to tell the Wisconsin legislature how to handle its election law. So let's take a look at what this actually says. Wisconsin has decided to proceed with the election scheduled for Tuesday, April 7th. 
The wisdom of that decision is not the question before the court. The question before the court is a narrow technical question about the absentee ballot process. In this court, all agree that the deadline for the municipal clerks to receive absentee ballots has been extended from Tuesday, April 7th to Monday, April 13th. That extension, which is not challenged in this court, has afforded Wisconsin, Wisconsin voters several extra days in which to mail their absentee ballots. So what they are saying here is because nobody challenged the actual extension, the Supreme Court isn't going to change it. The courts of the United States are supposed to be deciding things based on cases or controversies before them. And what happened here is that the Republican National Committee, and we see here Republican National Committee versus Democratic National Committee is the actual name for this case, is that they challenged only the requirement that there be no postmark, that the votes could be cast and counted up to April 13th. They didn't actually object to allowing the ballots to be received until April 13th. Now, the result of that is that you have a court at the district court level essentially making its own law, making its own extension, changing the law of the land in Wisconsin for its own reasons, which it explains in that district order. I highly recommend checking it out and you can agree or disagree with their reasoning there. But the Supreme Court essentially affirms that by not changing it. And yes, it wasn't brought up before them, but it essentially allows this kind of half approach where the Supreme Court says, yeah, okay, I guess we'll allow that extension even though it's not written into the law, but we will now impose this secondary requirement that we think fits with the law. In other words, the Republicans, the conservatives on the court here, have done their own kind of changes to the statutory interpretation of Wisconsin election law. The district court below them did the same. And the liberals on the court, the liberal side of the court, would have them essentially just agree to everything that the district court did. So it's not as easy a question as just X or Y or Republicans or Democrats. It's actually a very kind of specific confusing issue that the Supreme Court has tried to untangle. But as they start out here, they say the April 13th date wasn't challenged, so we're not reviewing it. We're going to allow the absentee ballots to come in through the April 13th date. The sole question before the court is whether absentee ballots now must be mailed and postmarked by election day, which is what the Wisconsin Election Commission had asked for. That's what the district court says they that was their request before it kind of eliminated that requirement as part of the request. Now, this is a little bit of base stealing from the conservative branch of the Supreme Court. It says the sole question is whether they must be postmarked by election day as state law would necessarily require or instead may be mailed and postmarked after election day so long as they are received by Monday, April 13th. Now, state law wouldn't necessarily require postmarking by April 7th. It wouldn't require postmarking at all. You could hand deliver it by 8 p.m. on the April 7th election day. And there isn't a postmarking requirement. We'll see that in the dissent. The reason for that is because of the delivery requirement itself. But the logic here is sound, that if you would have had to deliver it by the election day, then the postmark naturally would have had to occur if you were mailing it before that election day. And so it was implied because this has never been a question under the law before now. Importantly, in their preliminary injunction motions, the plaintiffs did not ask that the district court allow ballots mailed and postmarked after election day to be counted. That is a critical point in the case. Nonetheless, five days before the scheduled election, the district court unilaterally ordered that absentee ballots mailed and postmarked after election day 
still be counted so long as they are received by April 13th. Extending the date by which ballots may be cast by voters, not just received, but cast, for an additional six days after the scheduled election day fundamentally alters the nature of the election. We just talked about that. Regardless of how you feel about the conservatives on the Supreme Court, how this is written or otherwise, that is undeniably the truth. Whereas before you had one day by which everything had to be in and counted by changing it to an April 7th and April 13th kind of quasi double date, you effectively make the actual date of the election April 13th, which is something that you decided at the district court level was a delay that you could not otherwise do. You tried to split the baby and the Supreme Court is rightly identifying it as such. And again, the plaintiffs themselves did not even ask for that relief in the preliminary injunction motions. Our point is not that the argument is necessarily forfeited, but is that the plaintiffs themselves did not see the need to ask for that relief. By changing the election rules so close to the election date and by affording relief that the plaintiffs themselves did not ask for in their preliminary injunction motions, the district court contravened this court's precedents and erred by ordering such relief. This court has repeatedly emphasized that lower federal courts should ordinarily not alter election rules on the eve of an election. The unusual nature of the district court's order allowing ballots to be mailed and postmarked after election day is perhaps best demonstrated by the fact that the district court had to issue a subsequent order enjoining the public release of any election results for six days after election day. So there was a secondary order here that actually said, oh, wow, we figured out that there is an issue with this. If we're going to allow more votes to come in six days from the initial election day today, April 7th, we need to tell everybody that they can't report on the election results because justifiably people get concerned about games playing, get concerned about strategic movements of finding those absentee ballots that are out there that are issued and getting them in. If we assume, say, that the vote for that Supreme Court seat is within a thousand votes and there's 15,000 absentee ballots out there in the wild, this becomes a major issue. And yeah, if you try to enjoin every journalist, every political operative, every election commission representative in the entire state from revealing what is known and counted vote tallies, for six full days, I'm going to tell you right now, it's not going to hold. That kind of thing isn't going to work. And even if it did to the public at large, it isn't going to work for the bad actors that would leak that information. And if you think, and you're listening to virtual legality, and you believe the Republican legislature of Wisconsin are the devil and they want people to die, I don't necessarily agree with you. But if you think that, then you should be fully aware of the fact that they will know what the tally of the election results are and they will have every opportunity to go and work around those results in the six-day period in between the vote and when the votes stop being counted and cast. So yes, that will result in gamesmanship. Yes, that information will be leaked, maybe not to the public, but to all the bad actors that you can envision in your heads. And yes, that is a problem. The district court did fundamentally change the election. In doing so, the district court, in essence, enjoined non-parties to this lawsuit. These people weren't involved in the lawsuit, and they are otherwise under what amounts to a gag order. It is highly questionable, moreover, that this attempt to suppress disclosure of the election results for six days after election day would work. And if any information were released during that time, that would gravely affect the integrity of the election process. This isn't a concept that the district court even identifies or answers. The district court's order suppressing disclosure of election results showcases 
the unusual nature of the district court's order allowing absentee ballots mailed and postmarked after election day to be counted. And all of that further underscores the wisdom of the Purcell principle, which seeks to avoid this kind of judicially created confusion on the eve of an election. Then they respond to the dissent. They say the dissent is quite wrong on several points. First, the dissent entirely disregards that the plaintiffs didn't ask for this. Second, the dissent contends that the court should not intervene at this late date. But here the court says it would prefer not to do so. But when a lower court intervenes at, the, at a late date and alters the election rules, we want to correct that error. Third, the dissent refers to voters who have not received their absentee ballots. But even in an ordinary election, voters who request an absentee ballot at the deadline will usually receive their ballots on the day before or day of the election, which in this case would be today or tomorrow. <clears throat> the plaintiffs put forward no probative evidence in the district court that these voters here would be in a substantially different position from late requesting voters in other Wisconsin elections with respect to the timing of the receipt of absentee ballots. Now there, I think, again, we're stealing a base on the opinion of the Supreme Court, right? Because the district court actually has pages and pages where they essentially agree with the representations made by various authorities in Wisconsin that the Wisconsin voting process is having issues with timing, having issues with being overwhelmed. And the district court decision is ultimately based on that fact. So the Supreme Court here is saying that essentially there was no evidence presented, and that might be true, but they're essentially saying the district court didn't pay attention to the evidence properly. And that's not properly kind of discussed in an opinion like this. It's certainly not something that should be discarded in a sentence. It goes to show the very, very, very quick nature of this entire decision-making process. In that regard, it bears mention that absentee voting has been underway for many weeks and 1.2 million Wisconsin voters have requested and have been sent their absentee ballots, which is about five times the number of absentee ballots requested in the 2016 spring election. Fourth, the dissent's rhetoric is entirely misplaced and completely overlooks the fact that the deadline for receiving ballots was already extended to accommodate Wisconsin voters from April 7th, what we just looked at in their own website that said, yeah, it's going to be April 7th that you have to get your absentee ballot in by to April 13th. And again, that extension has the effect of extending the date for a voter to mail the ballot from, in effect, say Saturday, April 4th, because they would have had to put it in the mailbox and it would have had to go for three days and get there by Tuesday to Tuesday, April 7th. And they're assuming that their decision, which is happening right now, is enforced, which says, yes, you're going to have to postmark it by the election day. And so the district court and its push to April 13th for receiving the ballots has already given voters an extra three days. That extension was designed to ensure that the voters of Wisconsin can cast their ballots and have their votes count. That is the relief that the plaintiffs actually requested. The district court on its own ordered the additional extension, which would allow voters to mail their ballots after election day, presumably up until about the 10th, so that it can be received by the 13th, which is extraordinary relief and would fundamentally alter the nature of the election by allowing voting for six additional days after that election. Therefore, subject to any further alterations that the state may make to state law, the Wisconsin legislature can still do things after the Supreme Court acts last night, in order to be counted, we are going to require that postmark on April 7th or hand delivery by April 7th, as is otherwise referenced in the state law. And as we talked about before we dived into this opinion, they want to be very clear that they aren't saying the election should be taking place. The court's decision on the narrow question before it should not be viewed as expressing an opinion on the broader question of whether to hold the election or whether other reforms or modifications in election procedures in light of COVID-19 are appropriate. That point cannot be stressed enough. A more angry version of this might suggest 
to various legislatures across the country that they need to get their act together and make sure that they are covering and protecting their people because the court isn't going to rework existing law solely because of these kinds of items. Now, as was suggested in some of the headlines that I read at the top of this video, this is but the first of many, 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 many COVID-19 decisions that are likely to be happening at the state level and probably a number of which are going to go up to the federal Supreme Court level. This is essentially setting the stage. And it's unfortunate that in this specific situation, in a case that is the Republican National Committee versus the Democratic National Committee, the Supreme Court should come out with a 5-4 decision on what appears to be the conservative versus liberal kind of status of the court. It is an ultra-partisan decision, and it is unfortunate because it's already political by its nature. Unfortunately, I think based on what we see in the law, what the district court did was an extension that was unjustified, that the conservative side of the court is correct in saying, no, the postmark has to be by the election date or else you have delayed the election. And what we see here from the liberal block is, I think, well-meaning, but ill-considered under the law in and of itself. So what we've got here is Ginsburg actually responding and getting pretty irate here, pretty angry in the defense of the district court's decision. And she talks about the COVID-19 outbreak. She talks about what happened here with respect to what the district court ordered. And then it says as follows, the court's order requires absentee voters to postmark their ballots by election day, even if they did not receive their ballots by that date. That is a novel requirement. Again, being a little bit sarcastic, suggesting that some people aren't going to get their absentee ballots in time. Recall that absentee ballots were originally due back to election officials on April 7th, which the district court extended to April 13th. Neither of those deadlines carried a postmark by requirement. Now here, the liberal bloc steals a base, right? Yeah, the April 7th requirement didn't have a postmark by requirement because it required delivery by April 7th. You don't need to separately say that the postmark has to be by this date because you are actually requiring receipt of the absentee ballot by that date. So what the conservative side says, and I think it's incorrect because I think this is quickly written, is that it's essentially a state law requirement. It's implied by state law. That state law requires it to be delivered by April 7th. And if you're going to allow this half measure of allowing these absentee ballots to be delivered by April 13th, there is an implied date that they had to be cast by the actual election date because the election law itself required them to be in by that date. Obviously, you can't cast a vote after the day that you had to otherwise deliver the vote to the election commission. So yes, the April 7th date didn't have a postmark by requirement, but the law definitely implied that were we to be articulating a postmark requirement, it would have been by that date. While I do not doubt the good faith of my colleagues, the court's order, I fear, will result in massive disenfranchisement. A voter cannot deliver for postmarking a ballot she has not yet received. Yet tens of thousands of voters who timely requested ballots are unlikely to receive them by April 7th, the, co the court's postmark deadline. Rising concern about the COVID-19 pandemic has caused a late surge in absentee ballot requests. The court's suggestion that the current situation is not substantially different from an ordinary election boggles the mind. We talked about that. 
Some 150,000 requests for absentee ballots have been processed since Thursday, state records indicate. The surge in absentee ballot requests has overwhelmed election officials who face a huge backlog in sending ballots. Again, we talked about that as well. We think that that's where the court's opinion probably isn't doing enough to actually identify what the district court said was substantial evidence that the commissioners and the various municipal officials were in fact being overwhelmed in this specific scenario. As of Sunday morning, 12,000 ballots reportedly had not yet been mailed out. It takes days for a mailed ballot to reach its recipient. The Postal Service recommends budgeting a week, even without accounting for pandemic mail delays. It is therefore likely that ballots mailed in recent days will not reach voters by tomorrow. For ballots not yet mailed, late arrival is all but certain. Under the district court's order, an absentee voter who receives a ballot after tomorrow could have still voted as long as she delivered it to election officials by April 13th. Now under this court's order, tens of thousands of absentee voters unlikely to receive their ballots in time to cast them will be left quite literally without a vote. And yes, this is a unique circumstance where you've got this level of absentee voting, but the district court said itself that it can't delay the election. It can't change the law to account for that. And so there's no good response from Justice Ginsburg here, who, like her colleagues, as she says in this opinion, we have no reason to doubt the good faith of to say, well, the district court's decision should just be allowed because of this disenfranchisement of these voters, right? The situation with COVID-19 didn't develop over the weekend. It developed months ago and Wisconsin and other states across the country have been dealing with it for at least a month. And so what we are kind of working through right now is a legislature in Wisconsin that refused to change the rules to account for these specific circumstances and whether the court should be able to unilaterally change them for them. And I think the answer to that is no. The answer to that is you have to start looking at what the law says. And that's what the conservative block of the court winds up doing. And I don't think that changes the fact that everybody should be concerned about what Justice Ginsburg identifies here, but it should change the fact of what tools are in the tool belt for the Supreme Court to actually use. Again, Remember that the alternative here is allowing executives, allowing unelected judges to change the nature of the democratic principles on a state level and potentially a federal one, to have the judges intervene in their own decision-making for the will of the legislature, which ostensibly is the will of the people of that state to quote-unquote make things better as the judge themselves determine. And just like with the executive order, I would ask you to do the same kinds of thought experiments. Is this okay if it advantages the governor of Wisconsin? Is it okay if it advantages President Trump? No, election law is sacrosanct because of the importance of democratic principles in the United States. And we should be very, very wary of changing those democratic principles at a court level. And we should certainly be wary of changing the fundamental nature of an election to have a specific election date and allow votes to be cast after that date for almost a week. Justice Ginsburg finishes up by saying essentially that the concerns that are, the conservatives have as an issue here, that the uh, defendants have with respect to these kinds of issues aren't valid, aren't important enough given the potential safety concerns here. But Again, I don't think that changes the overall direction of her opinion. She finishes by saying the majority of this court declares that this case presents a narrow technical question 
That is wrong. The question here is whether tens of thousands of Wisconsin citizens can vote safely in the midst of a pandemic. Again, no, it's not. The safety question is for the states. The safety question, even as the district court stated, is for the health officials, is for the governor. And what was brought before the Supreme Court is the question of whether a postmark should be required on the absentee ballots. What you've got here in this dissent is a much more kind of holistic, this is wrong, we need to look at equitable principles type opinion, and that's fine. But the right people to bring that argument to are the legislature and the governor of the state of Wisconsin, as even the district court says. I don't think an election should be happening today. I think that Wisconsin has put its people at risk. But I don't think that federal judges at the district court, the Supreme Court, or any other level should be changing these things for them. Because down that road, the actual authoritarianism, the actual fascism, the actual despotism that so many people claim to be concerned about on social media, down that road, those things lie. And while I am entirely sympathetic to what Justice Ginsburg is saying here, that our systems aren't designed for this, that that's a question for the Wisconsin legislature, one that they absolutely fell down on the job from. But it's not a question that the district courts of the federal government should be correcting five days before the election. It's certainly not one that should be corrected by executive order delaying an election and allowing elected officials to just stay in the office until whenever by virtue of a governor's executive order. And unfortunately, while the conservative block here winds up voting for something that makes them look bad, winds up having these headlines that suggest that they want everybody to die, I'm not sure they had a better position to articulate. And the partisanship of this decision is bad. It's a bad signal for the future. It's a bad signal for what we are likely to experience for the next eight months of 2020, if not further. But in my opinion, that partisanship should have broken in favor of the opinion of the Supreme Court right now. And yes, I would have written it better. I think this was probably written by Kavanaugh, who I think is the worst writer on the Supreme Court by some measure, just based on one year of opinions being written by him. And I would have explained the situation better. I would have explained it like I just did in this episode. But outside of that, that partisanship at the Supreme Court is going to be a problem. And for people that want to believe in justice and the rule of law rather than the rule of man, this kind of decision becoming the norm is going to be even more problematic for the institution of the Supreme Court and the entirety of the Article Three justice system. This has been Virtual Legality for today. I know we touched on political issues. I'm very sorry. Please leave your complaints, including your downvotes if you're so inclined, In the video here, I'd love to have those conversations with you. Certainly not everybody's going to agree with some of the editorializing and opinion making that I put forth in this video, but I think it is important to have these conversations. It's important to understand that the rule of law has to take precedence, that elections have to take precedence, and that Supreme Courts make difficult decisions that don't always match what we would prefer our reality to be. My preferred reality is no election. I think Wisconsin fell down on the job, but it is not the job. And indeed, it is problematic on its face for the court system to take over that responsibility from the elected legislative officials of the state of Wisconsin. 
If you like this, please like, please subscribe, please tell your friends we're having these kinds of interesting discussions here in virtual legality. We usually talk more about pop culture. We talked about licensing and Call of Duty and various other things in previous videos in this series. Otherwise, if you caught this on YouTube, thank you so much for watching. And if you listen to it in its podcast form, thank you so much for listening. And I will catch you on the very next episode of Virtual Legality. Virtual Legality is a YouTube video series with audio podcast versions presented as commentary and for education and entertainment purposes only. It does not constitute legal advice and does not create an attorney-client relationship. If you have legal questions about the topics discussed, please consult your own legal counsel.